Here is one of our many recordings from the Revolutionary Ideas Online Festival held on the 28th and 29th of November 2020. This was a weekend of Marxist discussion and debate held by Socialist Alternative. Want to join our fight? Go to socialistalternative.net today and get in touch to play your role in the struggle for a world free of capitalist oppression. The Middle East is a region blessed, or you might say cursed, with a strategically vital position in the world and with a rich abundance of natural resources, so in particular oil. And the signature divide and rule strategy of British imperialism, along with its supreme colonial arrogance, has really left a lasting legacy in Israel-Palestine. So three years ago, we marked the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. And through this, British imperialism essentially pledged the same relatively small piece of land to two different peoples. The declaration promised the creation of a homeland for Jews in Palestine. It also pledged to create, to protect, sorry, the rights of the non-Jewish population in the region. And that's quite a strange way of putting it, really, when you consider that at the time of that declaration, Jewish people made up only about 12% of the population of historic Palestine. Nonetheless, the aspiration for a Jewish homeland had some basis. Jews had suffered centuries of persecution, were used as the scapegoat of choice for the European ruling class, including the British ruling class, for hundreds of years. The early 20th century had seen anti-Jewish pogroms sweep across Eastern Europe. But despite this, at the time of Balfour, Zionism still represented a minority strain of thought among the Jewish diasporas. The majority of Jewish people, especially Jewish workers, looked to the labour movement and to socialist ideas, not to Zionism, as offering a potential solution to the scourge of anti-Semitism. Indeed, working class Jews were very deeply embedded within uh, the labour movements of the various countries within which they lived. And people of a Jewish background have provided some of our movement's most prominent and heroic leaders, Trotsky or Luxembourg, for example. And early Zionism was really a kind of utopian strand of thought. Theodore Herzl, who was the person who first elaborated the idea of a Jewish homeland, was somewhat ambivalent about where it would be located. Nevertheless, a consensus developed among the emerging Zionist movement, which was very uh, diverse in terms of its politics. A significant part of it saw itself as socialist. A consensus really developed that such a home should be built in the land of Palestine. Now, Zionism was correctly understood by many in the socialist movement as problematic, not least in the way that it essentially made concessions to the anti-Jewish sentiments promoted by much of the European ruling class at the time, providing a kind of mirror image for some of them. It was an idea that could be easily manipulated to suit the anti-Semitic narrative of Jews being foreigners in their own lands, for example. But a seismic shift took place in terms of the consciousness of the Jewish working class on this issue which changed Zionism from being a minority fringe movement 
to being something more significant and perhaps even to being uh, supported by the majority, by though, though by no means all Jews worldwide. And it was the intensification of the perse persecution of the Jewish people, the rise of fascism and the horrific industrialised slaughter that saw six million Jewish people and five million non-Jewish people murdered in the Holocaust. And the impact of that on consciousness, but also the practical necessity for many Jewish people to emigrate, the lack of options that existed in terms of where they could go with the US limiting Jewish immigration, for example, all of that contributed to this very, very profound change which took place. And late on in his life, Trotsky wrote about this question. He argued that despite his clear criticism of Zionist ideology, he acknowledged that the huge ratcheting up of the persecution faced by Jews meant that the labor movement shouldn't rule out on the basis of socialism, support for the creation of some form of jo Jewish homeland. But he was also very clear that should an attempt be made to create such a state in a land that was already occupied, such as Palestine, then this would be a blood trap. And that was a perspective that sadly, I think has been proved correct. So by coincidence, we're meeting today on the 29th of November, and this is a date which marks the anniversary of the 1947 UN Resolution 181, which recommended the partition of Palestine as the basis for the ending of the British mandate there. Now, Resolutions 181, Resolution 181's proposal to give 56% of the land of Palestine to create a new Jewish state, set the stage for the outbreak of civil war, which occurred within two short months of the passing of this declaration. It laid the ground for the mass expulsion of the indigenous Palestinian population, starting with the so-called Plan Dalet, which went from sort of March to May of 1948, a coastal clearing operation, which was undertaken by the Zionist para paramilitary organization Haganah, which ultimately formed the core of the IDF. That saw Palestinians expelled from the coastal area between Jaffa and Haifa. A month later, all the villages along the Tel Aviv to Jerusalem road were also seized with the local Arab population expelled. That month also saw the Deir Yassin massacre in which fighters from far-right Zionist paramilitary groups slaughtered more than 100 Palestinian men, women and children in one village. And by the end of April, it's estimated that somewhere between 175 and 250,000 Palestinians had already been forced from their homes, including the near complete expulsion of West Jerusalem's Arab population. And this marked the start of a process of ethnic cleansing, really, which by the time of its culmination in 1949, had seen up to two thirds of the Palestinian population, roughly 700,000 people expelled from their homes and from their lands, with 75% of historic Palestine then forming the basis for a unilaterally declared Israeli state. And the Palestinians were left and remain to this day stateless the West Bank was controlled by Jordan, Gaza by Egypt, and more than 700,000, as I said, were forced to flee. 
most becoming refugees in neighbouring Lebanon, Syria and Jordan. And less than 20 years later, the 1967 Six-Day War saw Israel seize control of both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Israel seized Gaza from, uh, and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. It seized the West Bank, including East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. And obviously, I don't have time to elaborate on the history of all the wars, the flare-ups that have taken place in the 53 years that have passed since then. But I do think it is important for us to discuss and to point out that these decades of brutal oppression and occupation have not taken place for want of determination to resist on the part of the Palestinian masses. The question is, what strategy has been applied by the various factions that claim to be Palestinian leadership? Why have these strategies so far failed the people of Palestine? And crucially, what approach should socialists take to this seemingly insoluble conflict? It's no coincidence that the Palestinian Liberation Organization was launched in 1964. That was at the same time as burgeoning resistance to imperialist occupation was growing across much of the Arab world. And like the other national liberation movements that grew up at this time, the influence of Stalinism was a very important factor in what took place. It's bureaucratic degeneration, um, the Stalinist generation, degeneration that had taken place, and in particular, the Stalinist two-stages theory, which argued in the colonial world for democratic revolution to establish bourgeois democracy, with socialist aspirations being relegated to some distant second stage, and these ideas were very damaging. And while the PLO has many times enjoyed popular support among the Palestinians, it's never based itself on mass democratic grassroots participation. Its leadership's strategy began with armed attacks by secretive guerrilla groups, as opposed to mass action by the working class and peasantry. And this evolved into a position of attempting to form diplomatic alliances with corrupt Arab regimes of the region and using this as a basis to negotiate with the various imperialist powers. And so it's really been in spite of misleadership that working class and poor Palestinians have heroically struggled for many decades. Time and time again, it has been shown that it is mass action on the streets, not guerrilla type struggle or individual terrorism, which has been the most successful at forcing the Israeli regime back and winning concessions. The first intifada was not instigated by the official leadership of the Palestinians. It burst forth from below in 1987, releasing the pent up anger at brutal occupation that existed. And it took the PLO's leadership in exile by surprise. The Oslo Accords, which came as the movement became increasingly exhausted to its, due to its inability to defeat the Israeli ruling class, were accepted by the PLO. And this left them in charge of the Palestinian Authority. And this really is a position that you could liken to them acting as junior prison guards to the Israeli state as prison governor. And it was this betrayal 
which paved the way for a second intifada, which also came from below, but which much more heavily relied on counterproductive tactics of individual terrorism. And it's also this that set the stage for the rise of Hamas and of other forces, which were seen by many Palestinians as being more uncompromising, but which equally lack a socialist and class-based approach, the, the approach that's really needed. And all these organisations, Hamas uh, and Fatah alike, share in common an approach which fails to adequately link the struggle, struggle for Palestinian national liberation to the fight to end the conditions of extreme poverty that's faced by the majority of the Palestinian masses, both in the occupied territories and in Israel itself. And I think we'd also criticise an attitude towards the Israeli population on the part of their leaderships, which draws very little distinction between the mass of Jewish workers for whom the continued conflict brings only insecurity and hardship, and the Israeli ruling class who not only directly profit from the ongoing oppression of the Palestinians, but who also lean upon the fears and the reactionary sentiments that the conflict can generate in order to shore up a social base for themselves. Socialists support the rights of nations to self-determination. We draw no equal sign between the nationalism of the oppressed and the thoroughly reactionary nationalism of the oppressor. But we are not nationalists. This is because we understand that within any nation, there exist distinct classes with their own interests, interests which can't be reconciled. The national aspirations of the Palestinian elite, for example, are ultimately rooted not in a desire for the liberation of the Palestinian masses, but in a desire to be able to themselves be the people who profit from the exploitation of Palestinian workers. And as a result, they have never been prepared to rely fully on the strength of the Palestinian working class. They're too fearful of the forces that that might unleash. And equally, an Israeli worker facing low pay, insecure hours, sky high rents, many of the same issues that we grapple with here in Britain, Ultimately, they have far more in terms of shared interests with a Palestinian worker than they do with their boss who will exploit them both. And many discussions on so-called solutions to this conflict, I would argue, actually end up being quite abstract. Mm -hmm. For Marxists, yeah. truth is concrete. And therefore, we have as our starting point a programme to win liberation for the Palestinians, which is not based on abstract notions of what ideal world we might like to see, but on a concrete analysis of the reality that exists currently on the ground. And any serious approach clearly needs to take account of the Israeli Jewish population. And while it may have been correct to argue against the creation of Israel in the 1940s, we have to be realistic that this is now an established fact. There is now clearly an Israeli nation with a shared language, with a continuous territory and with a shared national consciousness. And Israel is an almighty military power. It's backed by an even stronger one, the US. Any attempt to defeat the Israeli state through military con conquest would not only result in a bloodbath, 
it would likely be defeated. So it's really only the united working class, both Palestinian and Israeli, which is the force capable of defeating the Israeli capitalists and the Israeli state. And that's because the Israeli capitalist class, like every other capitalist class in the world, relies for its profits on the labor of its workers and workers have tremendous economic power. Economic power, by the way, is really important when we think about a solution to this conflict, because it could be possible on the basis of a new and less openly reactionary regime than the one which exists now in Israel, to at some point in the future have an Israeli state which was prepared to recognize, at least in words, a so-called Palestinian state. But this really would be a state in words only. It would not only be a state without control over its borders, its airways, without its own military. The Israeli state would never, a capitalist state would never allow those things. But what's more, it would be on the basis of the continued dominance of Israeli capitalism. And it would therefore leave the dispossessed Palestinian masses in a continued state of extreme poverty. So in other words, it wouldn't provide a real solution for the problems that they face. And similarly, though it's far less plausible, I must say, the idea espoused by some on the left in Britain and elsewhere of a single Palestinian state, even if that were possible, would, under capitalism, inevitably lead to a Jewish population facing fresh and possibly very brutal oppression. And it's this fear of a repeat on some level of the horrors of the Holocaust, which the Israeli ruling class continually plays on in order to win the support of working class Israelis for its oppressive policies. So our task as socialists is therefore to advance a program which can win the support of the masses, both Palestinian and Israeli, and point a way out of the conflict. That programme must, out of necessity, recognise the historic injustice faced by the Palestinians and support their rights to self-determination. It must point a way out of the poverty felt most acutely by the Palestinians, but also faced by the Israeli masses. And we therefore call for a socialist Palestine alongside a socialist Israel in which the major monopolies are owned publicly and controlled democratically by working class people and in which the rights of minorities on both sides are guaranteed. And further to this, we see this as necessarily being part of a struggle for change across the region and the fight for a free, voluntary and democratic socialist confederation of the Middle East. And we argue that that would lay the basis for the development of a real trust on both sides, for the return of Palestinian refugees based on mutual negotiation, and for the foundation of a lasting peace and freedom from oppression for all the people of Israel-Palestine. And this program, I'm pleased to say, is not something that we reserve for abstract or academic debates. Uniquely on the Trotskyist left, we are an organisation which is actively fighting to build a socialist force in Israel-Palestine. <laughs> <laughs>